This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, Disha. Hey, Donnie. And welcome, everyone, to Ursa Short Fiction, the podcast where we geek out on our favorite short stories. I'm Donnie Walton, author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm Disha Filia, author of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. As always, this show is produced with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll get exclusive bonus episodes, and you'll help fund future stories and conversations. Today, we are thrilled to share another Ursa original audio production. The story is called What Got Into Us. It's by Jacob Guajardo. It was originally published in Passages North, and it was featured in the 2018 edition of Best American Short Stories. Ooh, so exciting. This is a deeply moving coming-of-age story narrated by Del Mar, who is looking back on a summer when he was 14 and his relationship with another boy named Rio as they are living in a touristy Michigan beach town. It's a coming out story in some ways, both for Delmar and Rio, but with very different conclusions. The scenes are mostly flashbacks to that summer, with a few from later years as the men reconnect at various stages of their lives. Disha, what do you love so much about this story? So I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. I, I want to share a line um, from what got into us. It, uh, this line jumped out at me on first read and it stayed with me ever since. It took this long to find someone that could love the rest of you out of me. As Whitney Houston Mm. would say, my Lord. (laughs) And and that's fitting because religion is among the entanglements that these characters um, find themselves in. Religion, sexuality, desire, identity, family, um, the language throughout, uh, you know, sort of these little vignettes in a way. The language is lean and spare, but so incredibly evocative and at times even haunting. Mm -hmm. And as I read, I had this feeling, it was sort of like a steady drumbeat, sort of like a a prayer. I just want these boys to be all right. I just want them to be safe. Please let them be all right. Are they all right? I know. Yeah. I worried so much about them too. And not just as boys, but in those Mm. adult versions of them that we see Mm -hmm. like kind of throughout um, in this story. And I also love the way that Jacob Guajardo here writes their mothers, you know, Mm. who Mm -hmm. are so you know, the mothers are wonderful friends themselves and so tender and kind of proud and hardworking, but they're also quite imperfect in a way Mm -hmm. that feels very real. Um, Mm -hmm. And they sometimes fail while trying to understand their sons. Um, And I, I love the word that you use haunting because this is a story about memory and about like, 
not just memory, but those formative memories that really shape mm-hmm. who we're going to be for the rest of our lives. And it's just amazing what Jacob is able to do um, in such short space. It's a relatively short story, but mm-hmm. we get sort of an expanse of these these young men's lives. And and this this summer they were fourteen. And you know something else that struck me is there's a lot here about their engagement with the natural world. Again, without mm-hmm. giving too much, mm-hmm. you know, it's a beach town. There's also a lake. There's a, a, a scene with a moose. And I have a bias that because sometimes when there's a, an emphasis or presence in a story or a novel on the natural world, I am very tempted sometimes to like skip those passages. <laughs> Mm-hmm. These are my confessions. Like they're just usually dull. Um, but the yeah, it way... reminds me of like reading Tolkien, trying to read Tolkien. Yes. I, I should say because I've never really actually made it through a Tolkien novel. or any number of authors that sort of oh. lean into that very dense prose about the natural world. But the way that Jacob does it here is that it's just interwoven into the stories very seamlessly, very beautifully. And, you know, it's like we get the metaphors, but we're not being beat over the head with it. We're not being beat over the head. Look at this lyrical metaphor, you know? So there's the story, you know, it's just, it's it's really a, quite a feat, I think. And, and I understand why it was in Best American. It's incredible. Yeah, we think that uh, the listeners are going to love it too. A little bit about the author. Jacob Guajardo lives and writes in Grand Rapids, Michigan. His fiction appears in the Best American Short Stories 2018 and Small Odysseys. Selected Shorts presents 35 new stories, among other publications. He is a recipient of the 2020 Robert Maxwell Fellowship from McDowell. He works from home as a narrative designer. You can read more from Jacob Guajardo in the show notes. After the story, make sure to stick around for the author in his own words, talking about the story and its origins. So... Without further ado, here's what got into us. This is Ursa, a new destination for short fiction from some of today's most thrilling writers. We're proud to present... What Got Into Us, a short story by Jacob Guajardo, performed by Vicky Valdeon. This story was originally published in Passages North and featured in Best American Short Stories 2018. And now, here's What Got Into Us. Rio is the bravest boy I know the summer we are 14. The beach is ours with all its coves and sandcastles. I have bug bites like beads of sap on my legs. It's June in Michigan and we giggle like princesses as we pull dresses on in the bedroom our single mothers share. We clip on earrings and hate their heaviness. We imagine our lives as women and say the things we think they would say. We tuck our penises between our skinny legs and walk with our thighs pressed together. When we're through, we hang the dresses up and we put the earrings back inside the cedar box at his mother's bedside. We promise not to tell anyone. There is a handshake, a promise made with our bodies that I will not remember until years later when I see the neighbor boys slapping hands before they part for dinner. 
The summer we are 14, Rio kisses me for the first time after he zips me into a dress. The dress is blue and white polka dotted, and the zipper snags on my tidy whities The kiss feels like a bug landing on my shoulder. He kisses my lips after he kisses my shoulder. The smell of his teeth is the smell of our shared lunch. Fried bologna sandwiches and rice and beans. We made the sandwiches ourselves, the rice and beans we heated up in the microwave. He doesn't zip the dress up all the way. My shoulder will sting later, like it had been a bee on my shoulder, not the harmless fly I'd felt. It won't always feel like stinging. When my husband kisses my shoulder, it'll feel good. We kiss when we think we're alone. We flip paddle boats on the beach and kiss under them, the seats dripping water down our backs. We kiss at the playground, shaded by tall wooden turrets and hidden by parapets. We get away with too much that summer. We grow up on Marlin Street in swim trunks. Our mothers drive their Chevy with every window down. The wind is in our hair and our open mouths. Years from now, I will move away from Marlin Street. Not far, a few streets over. Close enough that our mothers can walk, thumbing their rosaries to my house and sip mimosas on the porch where they will laugh like Spanish witches. But we grow up on Marlin Street in a beach house. The beach house is blue and has a screened-in porch. On the porch are two plastic chairs and a second-hand end table between them where our mothers sit with their mimosas. We sit on the splintered wood beside them or inside on the couch. Our mothers can't afford two houses. We'll never be able to afford to own two houses. They sleep on two twin beds in the master and... Rio and I sleep together in our room on one queen-sized bed. We never have friends over from school. Families rent out the beach houses for brief Michigan summers. Our mothers own a taqueria on the boardwalk. We own our vacation home. Our mothers are known by the locals as the Taco Sisters. They aren't sisters. They aren't sisters, and Rio and I aren't brothers. They are childhood friends, Immigrants' daughters who grew up translating for their mothers and fathers. They asked for what their parents couldn't. They aren't sisters, but they shared beds and sleeping bags just like Rio and I. They tell us we washed up on the shores of Lake Michigan. They say they spotted us in the beam of the lighthouse. They say seagulls carried us to their doorstep. They fit us with seafarers' names. Mine is Del Mar, his is Rio. Our mothers are named Maria, Maria Carmen, and Maria Blanca. We will never know our fathers. We know they were light-skinned and fair-haired. Rio's hair looks like bleached coral. My hair is black, but I'm light-skinned too. The only way we look like our mothers is our eyes. When we ask about our fathers, they tell us, in English, they are no longer a park of the picture, an idiom they've grown up saying wrong. We imagine our fathers must have been small men to leave such boisterous women. Our mothers never complained. I will ask about my father again, when I am leaving Marlin Street for college, and my mother will ask if they were not enough. The locals gave the taqueria the unofficial name Authentico. Our mothers had bought a neon sign to advertise authentic Mexican cuisine. Tacos de pescado, camarones rebosados, paella de marisco, arroz con pollo. The gaudy neon sign flickered over the walk-up window. They'd meant to name the place El Lago, 
but the loan from the bank bought them just one sign. We made fun of the unofficial name. We warned that someday a couple hermanos could open a place called Genuino and ruin them. We sit outside the taqueria on picnic tables and pick gum off the seats. We watch our mothers press tortillas and wipe their hands on grease-slicked aprons. Our mothers shoo us off the picnic table when the stand is busy. Years from now, when our mothers can't spend every day making tacos for tourists anymore, and I tell them I'm too busy to run the place, Authentico will close. I will buy the sign from them and hang it in my garage. The vacationing families drive their cars too fast down Marlin Street. They're on their porches smoking sausages or taking boats out on the lake. They are fucking on the beach inside murky coves. We hear them and call them monsters. We call anything we can't explain that June monsters. In Michigan, the summer is only a few months in the middle of the year, but our mothers love the beach year-round. It means every winter, we have to hear about some white boy trying to walk on the lake and drowning. One year, the white boy is a boy from our high school that we hate, and they'll never pull his body from the lake. And we'll feel bad for hating the boy. Our mothers make the holy triangle, up and down, side to side. We break into the empty summer houses. We scare the spiders out and play house. After our mothers pass out drunk, we spend the night in the empty beds of strangers. We make the beds every morning, fluff the pillows. We take things that don't belong to us, things we think no one will miss. I take cards from Euchre decks and tape them inside a lined journal. Rio cuts buttons from Sunday bests and carries them around in a velvet bag like marbles. We are monsters. We lie under the giant oak frames of the beds with a set of keys and carve our initials into the bed flesh. When I am 28 and expecting my first child, I'll wonder what got into us that summer and hope my child is not a monster. When I am 28 and expecting my first child... My husband and I will drive up Marlin Street to show my mothers the first sonogram. The child is growing inside a woman we paid through an agency. The surrogate is a healthy Latina woman getting her PhD in women's studies at the college in Kalamazoo. I'll believe that this detail will make my mothers proud. I'll struggle to find the best way to tell them. I'll expect that they won't understand. I'll expect questions I won't know how to answer. I'll bring them a flyer from the agency, complete with illustrations and a number to call should they have any questions. They'll make the holy triangle, up and down and side to side. That summer, Rio and his mother fly to Texas for the month of July to visit family. My mother and I take them to the airport. Garmin has to stand on her toes to kiss my forehead. She holds my face in her hands and says, We'll be back before you can say Tenochtitlan. My mother spends July harvesting in her garden. She does other things too, but mostly she is outside on her knees where she can pray in the dirt. Once, I hear her say Godman's name to the tomatillos. The tomatillos' papery husks crack and flake when they are ready to be harvested. My body does the same. I spend July under the paddle boats in the dark where I press my fingers to my lips and put my other hand down my shorts and say Rio's name. Rio comes back taller and darker. Beside me in our bed, his skin is still hot from Texas. 
he kisses me like he did before. Then he takes my pants off and pulls my cock out and licks his hand and puts me inside of him. After that, we're fucking everywhere. We're naked when our mothers are at work in the taco stand. We fumble around in the dark for each other like moths to the only light in a room. Sex will never be as exciting as when we are 14 and sharing a bed. In August, there is a summer camp in the city at the Baptist Church. The campers are new every week. We're too poor to go to summer camp. The campers swim on a private beach. We think maybe they can walk on water. We see them splashing out by the buoys. We start to call the boys buoys. We walk up the shore and get as close as we can. They wave sometimes, and others push their noses flat and stick out their tongues. I have not said out loud what I am, but I think about it all the time. Especially this summer when we are 14 and watching the buoys throw footballs on the church's private beach. I want to pick each mole from their pink backs and eat them like raisinets. We walk ten minutes into Grand Haven to sit outside the chapel and listen to the Bible lessons. The pastor's sermons scare us out from under the paddle boats for a few days. I think I'm more scared than Rio. Rio is brave. Rio is the bravest boy I know the summer we are 14. There are days I'm not up for cove crawling, buoy watching, kissing inside the yellow slide at the park. I stay inside and read instead. Rio's not much of a reader and heads out to adventure without me. He calls me a faggot first, and then the screen door slams. We won't always get along. When we start high school, he'll start to play varsity baseball. Our mothers will go to every game. I love the way he looks in a jockstrap. He's trying too hard. I'll try to tell him he's trying too hard and that nobody believes him, and he will hate me. He will have the chance to be popular, and he will take it. He runs away from home next summer, the summer we are 15. My tío Valentino is visiting from Arizona in a rented car. One night, when they are out walking the pier, Rio will take tío Valentino's car and drive it as far as Tennessee, where a state trooper will pull him over. We'll all drive down to Tennessee in the Chevy to pick him up from jail. Garmin will be furious. I'll think he's so fucking cool. We are subscribed to Michigan Animal Magazine that summer. Really, we're taking them from the Johnson's mailbox, reading them, and putting them back. We learn that cougars used to be native to Michigan, but we drove them out. We learn that feral swine are a growing problem. We already know that the state bird is the American robin, but we learn that cranes fly necks extended, while herons fly necks drawn back. We learn that what we thought were owls are mourning doves. We learn that a monarch's wings are orange with black veins, not orange with black stripes. Late in August, we are caught, giggling and naked, fucking in the pastor's bed. From his house, we'd collected sheets of cardstock paper with the church's name embossed along the top. The pastor opens the door to the beach house, and Rio and I jump from the bed, pulling on our swim trunks. He grabs Rio by the hair and slams him into the wall, thundering like a sermon. We run to the beach and hide in our spot under the paddle boats. Hours later, while we wait in the back seat of a cop car, the cops tell us that he'd left a pair of good shoes at the lake house, the reason for his unplanned visit. Before we go home and see the cops waiting outside our house, we are walking along the shoreline, panting. Rio sees something and points. Look, he tells me. I see fur and antlers. It doesn't move. I'm scared to get closer. 
He runs ahead, kicking up sand. The beach looks so big, like he could get lost in it. I don't want to lose him. I follow. My ankles buckle in the sand. This thing is a monster. It could rear its ugly head and tear us limb from limb. It looks dead for weeks, stinking and bloated. Its blood has turned the sand and water black. We know from Michigan Animal Magazine that this is a moose. Standing next to it, Rio looks so small, but he's 14 and taller and darker with skin still hot from Texas. He covers his mouth. We know from Michigan Animal Magazine that moose are only found in small numbers in the Upper Peninsula. We don't know how this one got here. Rio crouches, covering his nose. He says we have to do something. What can we do, I ask. He uses what we have. Driftwood, pebbles, brittle shells. He scatters them around the moose. I help him. I pull bent grass and pick flowers from the beech trees. We sit away from the moose and lean our heads on each other. The moose's antlers have already started to bleach clean in the sun. Our mothers will struggle through the winter. They'll get by cleaning other people's houses. They won't trust us alone in the same room together. One of the cops spoke Spanish and told our mothers what we were doing. The pastor didn't press charges. Rio will start to sleep in his mother's bed, and I will sleep with my mother and hers. Rio will crawl the coves without me. He is the white boy who falls through the ice that winter, but he pulls himself out and walks, shivering back to our house where I tell him how fucking stupid he is. I'll take his clothes off and take my clothes off and press us together inside a scratchy blanket. Years later, he'll flunk out of college and move home. Garmen will put him to work in the taqueria. We barely talk for months. He'll become the kind of brave that says yes to everything. When I graduate college, he's in a sober living house. He'll call and tell me one of the steps is making amends. A week later, we'll end up fucking against the walls of the apartment I share with my boyfriend. He breaks off in me like shells. I'll meet my husband, Fisher, when I'm 26. That Thanksgiving, I'll bring him home to meet my family. Rio is not happy about it. In the kitchen, while Fisher is trying his best to speak to our mothers, Rio tells me that no one can love me as hard and as real as he has every year since we were 14. I'll say, it took this long to find someone who could love the rest of you out of me. Fisher will hear our raised voices and ask from the other room if everything is all right. Rio finds a beer in the fridge. On our way home that night, I'll have to tell him about us. About Rio and me. The summer we are 14 and playing dress-up with our mother's clothes in their bedroom with Jesus hanging on a cross on the wall, we talk about getting older. We sit on my mother's bed, the dresses zipped up halfway and pulling around our waists. We haven't become monsters yet. We haven't stolen the euchre cards and buttons. We haven't called the boys buoys. The boy from school that we hate hasn't drowned in the lake. The moose hasn't washed up on the banks of Lake Michigan. We don't know that we'll never know our fathers. We'll wonder what got into us. Outside, though the curtains are closed and all we can see is sunlight, we know the beach is clean because summer is just getting started and the vacationing families haven't moved in. Rio has just kissed me for the first time. I'll get a sex change, Rio says. He gathers the dress around his hips and clips at his penis with two fingers. I like you as a boy, I tell him. 
Then you're gay, he says. Don't you like me? I ask. I love you, he says. It's wrong, though. We have to stop or something bad will happen. We take off the dresses and hang them in the closet. What Got Into Us is written by Jacob Guajardo and performed by Vicky Valdeon. Associate producers are Marina Lee and Ashanta Jackson. Ursa executive producers are Donnie Walton and Mark Armstrong. To support our work, become an Ursa member by going to ursastory.com join. You'll help us fund more episodes and stories from some of today's most thrilling writers. Thanks for listening. My name is Jacob Guajardo. This story is What Got Into Us. I think this story is about one's first attempt at queer love, um, maybe just love in general, and kind of the consequences of trying to realize that love. As far as setting the scene, I don't think it's ever mentioned in the story, but it takes place in Grand Haven, Michigan, or a Grand Haven-like city in Michigan. I think I tried at the time not to be too specific. But yeah, kind of a, a beachside town in Michigan where the lake is always cold no matter the season. For me, this story started with the image of the moose on the beach. It was a long time ago uh, when I started writing this story. I think it was back in like 2013 or 2012 even. Um, I was still in undergrad. I think I was writing it for a workshop there, uh, ended up not submitting it because it didn't feel finished. But the initial seed of the story was that image of uh, a moose on the beach and like what a problem that would be, I think, (laughs) to uh, try to move a moose from a beach. So that's where the story started. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm really bad with themes. Um, this is something I, I'm in a writer's group here in Grand Rapids, a queer writer's group. And we talk about themes all the time. If only because like, I'm really bad at recognizing them, but I'm really bad at writing towards them. And I don't know if it's the writer's responsibility to like go into a story thinking about those things. I think for some it is, and probably for me it should be. But I wasn't really thinking in terms of, of themes. I think the themes that emerged at the end of the story for me were family, um, especially chosen family, first love, uh, which is kind of always on my mind, and maybe uh, to some extent grief and being unable to communicate feelings, whether that's feelings of desire, feelings of love, or feelings of sadness. I talk a little bit about 
just a, a kind of lack of communication between all of the characters. The mothers in this story don't speak English very well. I think the two boys in this story have a hard time communicating to each other, um, even though they speak the same language and grew up kind of almost as brothers, um, in a sense. So uh, those are the themes that emerged to me. But I'm usually far more interested in what the reader takes away um, or what themes emerge for the reader. As far as complications or barriers or things that got in the way as I was writing this, uh, I was in a graduate level workshop at the time. Uh, I was submitting, I think this was the second story I submitted, but it was in a workshop with uh, Amy Hempel, who is one of my favorite writers of all time. So that was just kind of scary in and of itself. <laughs> like, what do I submit here? Um, I definitely wanted to impress her. Um, I wanted to impress my cohort. It was my first year there. So I was wanting to write this this story. And ultimately, I think what I ended up doing was submitting just something that felt really true um, instead of submitting something that I thought would impress. Because that's what I did the first time I submitted a story in that class was trying to write this uh, really inventive story and, and use kind of a frame for it and with this one, I, I kind of uh, mined my own history and, and thought really hard about how I make a story true. So I think that was the, the biggest complication was how do I stay true to what I know about love and, and queer love while writing fiction? Because fiction is made up. <laughs> and then, of course, just uh, kind of like the normal stuff that comes up when you're writing a story like, um, how do I finish it? And um, when do I find the time to write this thing? Um, I was thinking of all of those things too while I was writing this story. Fiction, I think, should be made up people doing made up things, but it should feel really real. And so I learned during... The, the process and the editing process, I got one comment back on the story that really changed my perspective, both on, on writing fiction and, and on this story. Uh, in the original draft of the story, I think the characters lived in two different houses. And one of the members of, of, of my fiction class, Elliot Reed, who has a great fiction career himself, wrote on the story, Is this true? And I think it was specifically relating to that they, they live in two different houses. Like, could they afford that? And, and I thought about it and I was like, well, probably not. They're single mothers. They live in Grand Haven, which is like a notoriously expensive town in Michigan. How are they going to afford to live in two separate houses? Um, maybe some way they could make it work. But it, for the story, I, I suddenly realized, no, it's not true. Um, and so I kind of went by uh, line by line in this story and just asked myself about every line, is this true? Which is kind of harrowing. Luckily for me, it was only like an eight-page story at the time, so it didn't take very long. Uh, but that was really kind of a game changer for me. And I don't know that a writer needs to go through every story he writes and say, is this true? But specifically for this story, it was really important. So I, I often come back to that piece of advice when, when I'm editing a story, even even now, and, and think, okay, so I like this idea, but is it true? Could it happen? And if it's not true and it couldn't happen, 
then, you know, maybe it's like science fiction fantasy and that's a different set of rules. <laughs> but if I can fix it and, and make it so it is true, I think that makes it the kind of story that people will believe. I, I hope it fits into the larger conversation about queer love and just love stories, right? Like, there's been a surge of like queer love stories, both in like movies and TV, but also writers, um, Ocean Vong, uh, Garth Greenwell, all these folks coming out with short stories and novels and graphic novels and kind of reshaping uh, a queer narrative that for a long time was about grief, about not being seen. And I, I hope that my story both like bridges the gap between that like old guard of queer stories where love had to be quiet and we had to find ways to exist and that it's connected to the new stories of just like existing and existing in beautiful spaces. In the last couple of years, I took up running for my mental health and my physical health and I downloaded this like ASICs, n- non-sponsored, this uh, ASICs runner app to have some guided training, uh, just a voice in my ear to kind of keep me motivated. And Coach Aaron, she would always say during my first uh, 5K training sessions, there's no such thing as a bad run. And I really took that to heart. I was like, oh, that's kind of good writing advice too. We go outside and we run every day, even if it's hard, even if it's raining. And like sometimes you go out and you have a really good run. Other days you go out and you're not feeling very good and it's a bad run. But it's not really a bad run because you went out and you did it and you ran. Like that's a pretty big deal. So uh, in my writers group, that's what I tell my writers now, Um, even though it sounds weird. I, I try to end each session by saying there's no such thing as a bad run to kind of communicate like there's no bad time to sit down and write. Um, We've all heard of shitty first drafts. I've kind of stopped thinking of them as shitty first drafts because what if you just let it be like a great first draft? (laughs) What if you love your first draft? (laughs) Um, It probably still needs work, but like, just, just get out there and run. Just get out there and write. So Coach Aaron, that was the advice that she gave me. She's not a writer, but I, I love looking to other places for inspiration and and I think that that's a great one. Uh, another one comes from, um, oh my gosh, what's her name? Uh, the Joy of Cleaning Up. Marie Kondo. Yeah, yeah, Marie Kondo. So she had a line in that book where she was talking about, you have to do this in a certain order and you have to do it quickly. And And the change must be so immediate that you have a change of heart. And I was like, oh my God, that's great writing advice too. A character should should change in some way that is so immediate or so unexpected that the reader in turn has a change of heart. So always looking to like other places for writing advice, I've found is like the way to go. As much as I love talking to other writers about craft, we often like say the same thing back and forth. (laughs) Um, And I don't like doing that. So one thing I've had to accept throughout the years is that other people's jobs are their art too. And I, I think I discounted that for a long time. My mom works in health sales for an insurance company. My dad is a he's worked at the same job for like 30 years making medical tools in a factory. And I never thought of their jobs as art. And then one day it clicked that like 
there is an art to doing the thing that they do and they care about it and they do it well. And so listening to other folks about what they have to tell us about their jobs or their lives, sometimes you can find like good advice in there about writing. So maybe that's my advice to your listeners is to like open it up and, and see what you have to learn from other folks. That's where I've done the most learning, I think. There's a great line from uh, Christopher Coe's novel, Such Times. Uh, He says, and it's, I mean, it's a really sad quote, but it kind of encapsulates, I think, the feeling a lot of us are feeling now. Um, One of the characters says, you can love life without loving your life. And I've always found that to be a source of inspiration that like, even when I'm feeling like, ooh, my life is not going the the greatest right now, I can look to other people's lives and, and see what I love about what they're doing. Um, and that kind of gives me a little boost. Um, and I hope people look at my life and, and see that too, um, when they need it.